another installment of The Conspiracy Skeptic. I'm a conspiracy skeptic, Carl Maymer, and my guest today is uh, Jonathan Abrams. Jonathan? Hey, how you doing? Good, how you doing, Jonathan? Uh, I guess for people who don't know you, uh, Americans who don't know you, uh, what do do you do? What's your claim to fame, Jonathan? Well, I am the host of the weekly podcast called The Reality Check, and uh, I'd just like to correct you there, we do have American listeners. Um, I know, yeah. It's produced here in Canada, but we don't uh, only talk about Canadian issues. We actually cover a wide range of issues. I like to describe it as a cross between the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe and uh, Stuff You Should Know. What, what's uh, Stuff You Should Know? Oh, right. That's that sort of uh, – it, it was a website or something like that, isn't no, it? No, that, that's the podcast for the site, HowStuffWorks.com. Okay. So, so we cover different issues like on our show. So like uh, recently we covered you know, how TV ratings work. But we've also covered, you know, traditional skeptical issues like conspiracy theories like you do and uh, things like alternative medicine and uh, UFOs and, and all, all sorts of topics. Okay. And, and it, you, you, it's part of the uh, – your podcast is sort of a, in association with the, the, the Ottawa Skeptics, right? Yes. That, that's a, a local organization I started uh, to uh, do a bit of local activism and, uh, and also for local skeptics to get together and – and socialize. And so the podcast was a bit of an outgrowth from that. All right. And, and, and uh, are you the president of the Ottawa Skeptics? Yeah, I founded it and am the current president. And right. uh, things are going pretty good. How often do you have elections? Uh, we haven't had any yet. <laughs> nope. You just declared yourself president for life? Well, nobody has expressed interest in being president. Okay. If they did, I might uh, just give it to them. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a lot of work, isn't it? Yeah. Wow. And yeah, you're, you're, I'm always impressed by your Ottawa Skeptics. Uh, I mean, not only your podcast, but, but your actual website, because you, you guys do like some really uh, in-depth investigations. Like, the, what is it? Not cold. Cold FX? Is that the... Uh... Yeah, that, that's the um, uh, cold remedy uh, that's very big here in Canada. Right. Uh, Barry Green wrote a really good in-depth article about that. Uh, he's also written an article about uh, Canadian Blood Services and how they use uh, blood pseudoscience to pr- to promote donations, which is a worthy cause, but they just go about it the wrong way. Right. So the the, the so the Japanese blood typing is personality kind of thing. Exactly. So it's it's a bit of an ethical dilemma there that I thought was interesting, and that that got picked up by the uh, popular website Slashdot. Oh, okay. So that so that was pretty cool. Wow. And and, and there was another thing too, where schools in your area where they're buying like these. Uh, so-called EMF suppressors or something that were just yeah. bags of dirt? Yeah, so uh, Barry and I attended a local presentation for some uh, pseudoscientific product. We attended this presentation out of curiosity, uh, and it's these these uh, basically tubs of dirt that are supposed to protect you from the harm, harmful effects of EM radiation. And their particular claims are really muddy and hard to pin down. And uh, at the end, he in order to promote the product, he was saying about he was telling us all about the different uh, people that have bought the product, and in there were was a, a couple of public institutions, the uh, uh, local school boards. A couple um, schools had purchased them, so we thought that this was a good opportunity 
to uh, get the message out. And so we contacted the school boards and notified them that these have, these may have been bought and what they're going to do about it. And eventually we pressured them into uh, removing them from the schools. So yeah. that was a, a bit of a small skeptical success. Well, yeah, that was great. I mean, you guys really kind of get off your duff and do things unlike – I, I mean, I should – complain because you know I'm, i could get off my duff and do something but uh you know here down here in toronto uh, canada's richest city um and the greatest hockey team in canada uh you know i don't think we really do a, a tenth of what what you guys do up in ottawa oh i wouldn't say that you know it, it's, been, <laughs> it's been a bit slow lately um uh, you'll probably be happy to know that barry the guy who i keep referring to he's actually moved to toronto oh so you can take advantage of him there if you like um, we'll continue doing what we do here, though. Yeah, we're just, we're just too busy paying our mortgages. Come on. <laughs> All right. So, um, right, and and who who's on your you know your podcast? You guys have a lot of a lot of people on your podcast, both currently and and past people. Who's 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 your on your current lineup? So currently, we have myself. Uh, we have Adam Gardner, Darren McKee, Elon Dubrowski, and Xander Miller. Okay. So it's five dudes okay. getting together and. Uh, Talking about science and and skepticism and that sort of stuff. Hey, you, you had an actual lady at one point, right? Yes. Uh, in the past, we had Catherine Labelle on, who is a, um, a neuroscience student. Uh, but she unfortunately moved out, and uh, she now lives in Montreal, I believe. Oh, okay. So and- unfortunately, she couldn't uh, stay on the show. The uh, I I did a review of Dogma Free America and I I, I called their female co-host I called her an actual lady. Well, I kept referring to everything in the in the review as actual. Like he's an actual doctor and you know, you know he's actually married. And then when I came to their their you know their woman co-host, I'm like she's an actual lady and and, <laughs> and I, I I think she took she took some amused offense at that or something. I don't know. She was really offended by it, but. <laughs> I don't know yeah. if she sort of she sort of noticed the evolution of the joke through the piece or something, but uh, I didn't really mean to offend her, but or uh, offend your your former actual lady co-host. But uh, yeah, it, is she the one who does the little segment intros? Like, here's Darren with another segment or something like that. So for that part, um, uh, we have uh, a fellow Ottawa skeptic, Pat Roach, who does our music. So he's the guy who who does our intro and outro music, and when he has the time, he he makes custom intro uh, uh, cover songs that kind of have skeptical lyrics to them. Yeah, those, and, those, those, those are amazing. Yeah, so it's his wife that actually does the uh, segues. Uh, okay. And she does the intro and outro uh, All right. uh, speech. So yeah, like your, your – uh, oh, so what was his name again? Pat, Pat Roach, right? Pat, Pat Roach and, and his wife, Christina. And his wife. Right, so they do uh, – they, they sort of take popular songs, let's say like, like The Gambler. Can't even wrote popular songs. Huh, maybe I'm dating myself. But uh, they're like Kenny Rogers, The Gambler, and then they sort of switch out the lyrics for kind of skeptical-themed lyrics and stuff like that. Can, can you think of any others off the top of your head, what, what they've sort of parodied? Uh, so much. It, it's – I can't – if you put me on the spot like that, I won't be able oh. to pick it up. It's not <laughs> like I have a list of them somewhere either. All right. Do, now, do, do they do like the whole song or do they just do like a snippet? Oh, they just do a snippet, like uh, 10 okay. to 20 seconds at the most. All right. Because, I, I, you know, I, I'm i thinking that if you did like – if they did a whole song and then put it on CD, you know, that would be good maybe fundraising. Sort oh, of. yeah. We've actually discussed that. We've discussed having a full album of full song covers. But I don't know if the uh, the joke would stay funny for an entire song 
And if and I, I question whether or not we actually could write an entire song's worth of lyrics. That's true. For each song, you know, that, that's quite a bit of work. Yeah, it is a little work. And, and uh, I should get the Korean questions out of the way. Uh, how, how old are you? I am 26. 26, sorry. And uh, are, are, are you married? Yes, I am. Oh, nice. So when did you get married? Huh? Uh, oh, geez, now... <laughs> Stop <laughs> putting me on the spot again. Uh, <laughs> a year and a half ago. Is your wife beautiful? She's gorgeous. Okay. She's very understanding, I, too. Okay, good. <laughs> and I, what do you do? Are you still a student at uh, University of Ottawa? No, no, no. I, uh, I graduated from Carleton back in 2006, and I've been working as a computer engineer ever since. Oh, okay. I thought it was University of Ottawa, you guys were all Ottawa skeptics. So I, I guess I just made that association, Ottawa skeptics, University of Ottawa. Actually, our podcast was recorded in Carleton University for the longest time. Now okay. we just record in Darren's uh, apartment. Okay, University of Ottawa. Do you have to be bilingual to go to that to that university? No, no okay. it's a bilingual university where they have courses offered in both French and English. But you can be French or English and attend there. Oh, okay, all right. So uh, Ottawa has two universities. Yeah, two major universities: uh, University of Ottawa and Carleton University, as well as a uh, popular college, uh, Algonquin College. And put you on the spot again. What's your What's your mascot? Oh, geez. Uh, what's your fight? What's your fight song? Well, I don't know the fight song, but we're uh, <laughs> the Ravens, the Carlton Ravens, and uh, our basketball team is probably the best in the country. They have very long winning streaks year to year. Uh, okay, I, th- I think Americans are always sort of surprised that uh, Canadian collegiate sports are like nothing here. No one really, very very few people pay attention to their their you know their college football team or the university football team th- things like that. Yeah, I just know that my uh, university's basketball team was really good, but I never. I never went to a game or, or paid attention to it at all. And Jonathan, what's your uh, what's your favorite conspiracy? I don't know. That's like saying what's your favorite serial killer or uh, who's your favorite serial killer. You know, yeah. like, none of them are very pleasant to me. Um, but I I guess I would say probably JFK because that was the one I believed in the longest. All right. Yeah. Ever since I was a kid, I always thought that was true. Um, it just made sense, and I was a big fan of the Oliver Stone movie. And uh, I guess I still am, even okay. though now I realize how unwieldy that conspiracy is. And, and I'm familiar with all the debunkings of it, which I'm sure you've covered. Yes, we, we did a podcast on that, right? This is not another podcast about the JFK conspiracy. Don't, don't, don't worry, Nigel. <laughs> right. But, you know, but for entertainment purposes, what's your favorite conspiracy? But I'm here to talk about the one that uh, I have most experience with, which is the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And if I could be, I don't know if it's rude, like what uh, you, you I, I don't know if you're an atheist, but you, you were raised in a certain religion. Well, yes, I am an actual Jew. Okay. And <laughs> just call back there to the previous joke. Uh, oh, and... yeah, thank you. <laughs> I've, got an, I've got an actual Jew on my show. All right. <laughs> so, yeah, I was raised Jewish. Okay. Um, uh, I guess I would describe myself as a non-believer uh, right. and a skeptic now. Uh, but, you know, I still identify culturally Jewish. I still, you know, attend uh, uh, family uh, uh, religious dinners, you know. Okay. Uh, and, uh, yeah, uh, so I, I am Jewish, but I'm also a non-believer, and the two are not, uh, you know, mutually exclusive. It, you, can, you can be both. Right. It's possible. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm personally affected by 
conspiracies like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which we'll get into, uh, because of anti-Semitism. Right. You know, whether I believe in a God or not, I'm still considered Jewish in other people's eyes, and therefore I'm still affected by anti-Semitism. Okay. And you, you kind of didn't know about this, but then you had a sort of a strange introduction to, you know, the the, the protocols. What was your? Uh... Yeah, so um, I've been vaguely familiar with the protocols for a long time. Like I've always known it's existed. Uh, okay. I've known that it's you know it's bogus, or so I've been told. Uh, but it really came to the forefront when I was in university. It was it was uh, probably my third year. Uh, I was. Uh, dating my wife at the time. Uh, she wasn't my wife yet. And uh, she had an encounter with a teaching assistant, a TA, and she went to the TA to ask for some help on some subject, and the TA noted she had a Jewish name or a Hebrew name. And so he started asking her about it. And then he, this TA went on a diatribe about how Israel is awful. It's a terrible country. You know, he's entitled to his political opinions, but then he started going into areas about Jewish conspiracy, and uh, he asked her if she's ever read the Protocols of Zion, and yeah, that was not a good experience for her, but uh, it did pique my interest in the Protocols somewhat, so I looked up on it, and I was just shocked uh, how people could believe in something like this, not because it's so awful, but because it's so stupid. <laughs> that, I, I apologize to any listeners who who, uh, who tuned into this who are believers of it, but uh Come on, it's completely ridiculous, and I can get more into that if you want. Yeah, sure. Okay, and uh, I, I had your had your 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 girlfriend, uh, future wife, who's as beautiful today as she was back then. More beautiful. Uh, more beautiful today. Yes. Yes, of course. Yes. All right. So, uh, had she heard of the protocols? Like, did did she know what the guy was uh, yapping about? No, she had no clue. Oh, okay. All right. So, uh, so then you you kind of researched into it and and so what the what are the protocols of the elders of zion it, it goes by a couple of different names i think but that's sort of one of the most common the most common is the protocols of the elders of zion or the protocols of the sages of zion or the protocols of the learned elders of zion or something like that okay. basically it's a uh, supposed uh recording of minutes from a secret jewish conspiracy meeting that took place in the late 1800s you know, it's it's the smoking gun for conspiracy theorists. Here's the proof that there is a secret conspiracy uh, going on that's guiding everything that's going on in the world. Right. And, and so it's relatively short. You can read through it, you know, in less than an hour. Um, I, I just skimmed through it before uh, before uh, doing this interview here. And um, it's it's such nonsense. It's really hard to read because, you know, it's a bit of an older style of language. Okay. Uh, it's, a, it's a translation of a translation. Uh, and it's a plagiarism as well. I can get into that later. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, what 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 are some of the kind of the key features? What are some of the the points? Like, what is what it, what are they conspiring to do? Those learned elders. Well, it's kind of vague, right? So, it's the the key message that they're trying to get across is that the Jews are in control of everything. So, it talks about the banking system. It talks about. Uh, uh, the political system. It talks about communism and democracy. It talks about religion. Uh, and it, it, it talks about the media and how the Jews are going to take control of the press and how the Jews are going to control interest rates and how the Jews are going to choose the leaders. It's, it's pretty much a paint-by-numbers conspiracy with very little imagination at all in it. Right. 
And if you if you take out Jews and swap in like Illuminati or Bilderbergers or shape shape shifting space lizards, I mean it's you can kind of see how it's the conspiracy template for modern times, basically. Well, it's not just kind of like that. It actually is. It has been literally done. Uh, it's the Jews have been swapped out for the Bolsheviks. The Jews have been swapped out for the Illuminati, the Freemasons. And uh, even in David Ick style, extra-dimensional beings. You know? Yeah, yeah. Right. And so, what, uh, what, what are the sort of the actual origins? Like, what, like, how do we know this is kind of fake and not not really the minutes of? So yeah, uh, the book was or the 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 protocols were debunked in 1921 by the Times of London, and uh, uh, investigators there discovered that uh, the protocols. Uh, were uh, discovered that the protocols were plagiarisms of political satires written in the mid eighteen hundred mid to late eighteen hundreds in Germany. So the the first book that that influenced the protocols is called Dialogue in Hell between Machiavelli and Montesquieu, uh, written by the French satirist Maurice Jolie. And in it. Uh, he describes the political ambitions of Napoleon III uh, talking with the devil about how he's going to be taking over the world. Right. And, and then this later got adapted and plagiarized again uh, by Hermann, uh, I can't pronounce his last name, we're going to totally <laughs> butcher here, Hermann Geech in right. his 1868 novel Biarritz, okay. where he just takes it even further and he introduces the, the Jews into it and... and uh, and it starts to form there, and then later on, that's then imported into Russia. Now, Russia is the is like the final, you know, draft, so to speak, where it was uh, put together by the uh, the secret police working for the Tsar in Russia at the time as a way to uh, scapegoat the Jews and blame the Jews for all the problems that occurred occurred in Russia at the time. Right. And was used as an excuse to do things like the the pogroms, which were a series of uh, anti-Jewish attacks in around the turn of the century right and um was it that was around the when when did was it also kind of like a kind of response to communism because like some of the you know the leading communist authors were sort of you know jewish heritage and uh you know was it kind of a way for you know the the sort of the the I guess what are they called? The White Russians, the uh, sort of yeah. The, yeah, to sort of uh, you know smear the uh, you know the, the the communists or the Bolsheviks. Yeah, it was very popular amongst the White Russians uh, for for smearing both the liberal movement as well as the communist movement. So it, it accuses the Jews of using communism to to uh, rule the world, which I guess in retrospect seems a bit silly. You know, communism doesn't seem as powerful nowadays as it used to be. So I mean, there've been uh, I mean, there've been a couple. It just wasn't the Times of London, haven't there? But a couple other governments, like I think the American Senate, I think they even investigated the protocols of Elders of Zion and concluded that you know it was a, it was just a hoax and stuff like that. And like a couple, couple nations have officially even investigated them. I think. Yeah, like you don't even need to investigate it to determine it's a hoax. You just need to read the damn thing with an open mind. Yeah, yeah. It, it's just so naive and and, and silly. Like it, it doesn't read like the minutes from an actual meeting. You know, there's no back and forth between different members. It's just the rattling off of how 
great they are and how stupid everyone else is. Right. And how they're just going to control everything. They, they don't even go into details of how they're going to do any of it. It's left to the reader's imagination to fill in the gaps, which and, is very convenient. And if you recall uh, Henry Ford, the guy who started the Ford Motor Company, he was a big believer in, in the protocols. Well, he, I think he, he was responsible for sort of printing up an English edition for the USA. Yeah, he was one of the first to, to distribute it widely in, uh, in the U.S. He printed up, uh, I believe it was 500,000 copies and distributed, uh, distributed it with his uh, newspaper, the Dearborn Independent. And you could buy a, a Ford car at the time and get a free copy of it if you wanted. <laughs> and um, uh, he was uh, eventually, he got in trouble with the, with the government, with the, the U.S. They forced him to apologize for it in the late 20s. Uh, and Ford Motor Company, in order to, to make amends for uh, their past transgressions, uh, they even uh, paid for a commercial-free um, uh, broadcast of the sh- of the movie Schindler's List in right. North America in the late '90s. Right. Yeah. I mean, they didn't sort of come out and sp- specifically say, you know, okay, we're really sorry about our our founder. But I mean, it was kind of that was sort of the you know the back channel talk, but. Uh, it was it was a good movie, regardless. And I, I have a friend. She works uh, she works as a restorer at the Henry Ford Museum, and uh, and she says that uh, I mean they've got all his papers and yeah, I mean all of his anti-Semitic writings and stuff like that. And she said, you know, they do not hide it at all. If researchers come and say, you know, I want to see what he wrote about, you know, the Jews in you know nineteen twenty, they you know it's like oh, it's right here. Help yourself. Take a look. I mean, the, the you know the, the the Ford Motor Company and the Ford family—they're very sort of open, and they don't try to, you know, hide this about about Ford. So that you know that that's something. Yeah, well, that's pretty much the only way to handle it, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, don't. It's like who is the who the founder of IKEA? Uh, don't sue me. But there there uh, there was some stink about him, his his uh, his involvement in with Germans or something in World War Two and. Something was kind of hidden or something. I don't know. I'll have to look that up and put a link to it. But, uh, yeah, it's never good to hide these kinds of things. Yeah, it's kind of impossible to hide uh, Henry Ford's anti-Semitic past because he was very vocal about it. He was a big supporter of uh, Hitler uh, before World War II, of course. Uh, during World, when Once war was announced, his tune changed very quickly. Right. Great. And, and uh, another another one I kind of wanted to do, uh, which is it, – it's, it's – not quite hand in hand, but it's it's another one of those like this is so stupid. I can't believe people people uh, people buy it. It's called the uh, it's called like the secret the secret Jewish tax on food. Have, have have you heard about this one? Oh yeah, we actually discussed it on our show on the Reality Check. Oh, if you okay. uh, search for uh, kosher on autoskeptics.org, you'll you'll find it. Uh, basically, uh, this conspiracy about the kosher tax on food. If, if you notice on packaging for most packaged goods, uh, there will be these symbols on there that uh, basically tell you if the food is kosher or not. That's what they're there for. So these symbols will be like um, uh, they represent the company or the uh, the people that verified that the food is kosher. So, for example, one company has a U with a circle around it. Another one will be MK with a circle around it, which stands for Montreal Kosher. Another one is a COR with a circle around it. Uh, or the the more obvious and uh, common one is just a K of some kind, which stands for kosher. Right. K with a triangle around it or a circle or something. So basically, basically, uh, for Jews that keep kosher, the set of these dietary laws where you can't combine milk and meat, 
and the meat they consume has uh, has to be from uh, animals that are killed a certain way and cannot contain any pork at all or shellfish. Uh, when they buy foods, they need to they they need to make sure that the food they're buying adheres to the kosher laws. So they basically trust these organizations to verify it for them and then right. put their seal of approval on it. Uh, companies pay for the service of of uh, so the food manufacturers pay for the service of these kosher. Uh, um, certifiers to have them put their seal on it and to approve that it's in fact kosher food. Uh, this is actually taken out of their marketing budget because it helps them to sell more product. So if you consider that, uh, uh, say Oreo cookies sell to, let's pull a number out of my butt, uh, 10 million people okay. right, in a year. They'll sell 10 million Oreo cookie packages, which is probably on the low side. Uh, if they put the kosher symbol on it, they can now appeal to a whole new market that would normally have not bought it because it's not kosher. Right. So by putting the kosher symbol on it, then they'll have, say, an extra million sold, right. which is maybe a bit high on the number side. But they could sell more by putting the kosher symbol on it because there are people who actually truly want the food they eat to be kosher, right. which is fine. It, it, uh, it's just just not Jews that, that stay kosher. Like like the kosher symbol also lets uh, uh, yeah, Muslims or something too there's there's a certain there's a certain crossover isn't there yeah some muslims uh with their with their dietary laws called halal some of it crosses over with the kosher laws so so depending on the type of muslim and the type of halal they follow some kosher uh symbols can be useful to them as well uh plus a lot of the kosher symbols will specify whether the food is dairy or not or okay. parv uh, okay. dairy meaning containing some kind of milk product or parv meaning containing no milk product okay. and that can help uh vegans as well Okay. All right. So, uh, so the so the, the there's kind of two claims basically that you know the 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 secret Jewish tax on food people make is that is that one that this costs the like the non-Jewish people, uh, 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 you know, like I mean I've seen figures where they claim it's like you know two thousand dollars a year per family, you know, in extra food costs, and uh, uh, as as well that you know they sort of claim that uh, that you know only like a very 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 small percentage of, of the population is Orthodox Jew, and therefore you know are would would have need of this kosher food. So what's what what are the two problems with those two claims? Well, the problem with that is that um, they're not. These companies are not being forced to pay for the symbol to put on the food. Uh, as I said before, it's a part of their marketing budget. Some companies do it because they think it'll sell sell more more uh, product and therefore pay for itself. It will be a net benefit for the company. Uh, and some do not decide to do that. Uh, by them putting the symbol on there and selling more product, if they calculate that this increases their sales it could in fact actually lower the price of the product overall because more people are buying it due to economies of scale, they can then lower the price on it. So it actually does not increase the price right, of foods. Right. And what, what, what company on earth willingly pays a tax that companies like to eliminate taxes on their goods because it lets them sell more, right? So there's no company on earth that willingly pays a tax that doesn't have to. Well, the whole idea of a tax is that they're forced to pay it, right? Yes, yes. And the simple fact is that most food does not, like, the simple fact is, is that there's tons of food out there that does not have the symbol on it. So why is it some, some manufacturers go for it and some do not? Right, exactly. It's, it's very complex and it depends on the economies of scale, the markets that the food is sold in, whether or not there's enough Jews that would buy it, 
So it, it, that seems to me like a simpler explanation than some vast conspiracy. Right. It's a bit like, um, you know, it's like in America, like, like a lot of American products, they, uh, they put French, you know, they, they put French on their label just because they know they're going to ship to Canada and, you know, they, uh, they know they have to comply with sort of, you know, French language laws. So, um, you know, so it's, you know, there's no secret French tax on, you know, actually on, uh, on shampoo. A good uh, compare, a good analogy I would make is um, to organic food, where it, it's it's an arbitrary set of rules about the preparation of food that uh, basically says nothing about the quality of the food itself. Yet some people consider it important, and there are different uh, groups that will certify food as organic, and the organic consumer can decide whether or not they trust a certain label or not. And a company, whether or not they want to label their food organic or not, has to weigh the costs and benefits, just like they would with kosher food. Right. Now, now what are the – you were talking about sort of uh, economies of scale and selling to more people. Now, the the sort of the – I guess the secret Jewish tax on food, you know, conspiracy nuts, they they claim – they claim, well, there's only like about 100,000 Orthodox Jews in in America, so that – that you can't poss- that can't possibly contribute to an increase in economies of scales. What's 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 the problem with that? Well, what do you think, Carl? Well, well, I mean, my hypothesis is, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. That uh, yeah, they're making the, the the claim that that only you know only Orthodox Jews, like the the most strict Jews, remain kosher. When when uh, you know when there are a lot more uh, people who you know are Jewish that that they uh, you know that they they sort of maybe dabbled in kosher food. You know, they're they're not very strict all the time, but let's say over Passover, then you know, then they stick kosher, or maybe like Catholics who are like you know, C and E Catholics, Christmas and Easter Catholics. You know what I mean? Is is that is is that sort of the, the case? That's absolutely correct, and that is uh, that's true of my family. Actually, uh, my family does not you know keep the Sabbath. They they drive on the Sabbath. But uh, and then they don't even keep kosher. You know, we'll go out for dinner. I was raised that way. We'd go out for dinner. You know, get bacon, whatever. That was fine. But in the house, all the food that we would buy from the grocery store would all be certified kosher. Right. Okay. So, so everyone makes their own uh, limits and their own ways of, of uh, following tradition and religion. So yeah, just just because there's only a certain number of Orthodox or Black Hat Jews uh, in the U.S. does not mean that they're the only ones that buy kosher food. Right. The uh, one one of the one while researching this, I came across one document. It, it, it was curious that it was it's on a a rate or on a uh, website called radioislam.org, but it, it's it's written as if it was written by maybe some sort of uh, extremist kind of you know hating Christian group because they keep talking about harping on like you know how this is you know the secret Jewish tax on food is sort of abusing Christians and stuff like that and, and there's one line in here which almost opens up into another interesting little conspiracy we could we could sort of delve into uh, it's where a guy's talking about um, uh, we, we pay a nominal fee for periodic inspections kosher spaghetti what in the world do Jews know about spaghetti they put ketchup on it and eat it cold is that true that's not a conspiracy this is this is this is this is the this is the the, the money shot all those Italian Americans who sit down at their meals pay the people who claim Jesus is in hell burning in excrement in brackets Talmud so according to this that the Talmud uh, you know that uh, Claims that Jesus, you know, our Lord and Savior, is is burning in hell. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised a, a Muslim would care all that much about that line. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But that's sort of it. There's sort of a in you know, I I I was now researching this and got to the very helpful website by David Duke that uh, where he's talking about the uh, you know the Talmud claims that you know Jesus is uh, is is burning in hell and and but you know when you sort of research his claim like well that's awfully that's awfully brutal you know but when you research his claim it's they they talk about uh, you know it's like Ye- Yeshua or something there was some there's many references to different people in the Talmud called Yeshua which is sort of like saying you know Billy or John or something like that. It's a very common or, name. Well, or Joshua, which is the uh, English translation. Right. Yeah. So, so you know, it, it's not clear at all that that you know just because you're saying Yeshua in in the Talmud that that's necessary because you know Jesus's Hebrew name or whatever is Yeshua. You know that that's not necessarily Jesus. There's there's a couple other similarities. Like, well, this Yeshua guy was sort of executed, but he he was hung. He wasn't crucified and stuff like this. But but you you you'll sometimes maybe encounter that that you know oh those Jews say that you know Jesus is burning in hell. You know. I find it interesting that you brought up the um, uh, the whole the the Muslim angle here. Uh, that was something I didn't get a chance to get to when talking about the protocols. Uh, in recent years, the protocols just have fallen out of favor, uh, like in the past fifty years. Basically, since World War II, the protocols have been sidelined, except for in one place in the world, which is the Middle East. In the Arab world, uh, the protocols is a huge hit. You know, they, they just have massive printings. Uh, it's the best-selling book in, in a lot of these countries. And they've even had um, full dramatizations broadcast on TV <laughs> during prime time in uh, Egypt, oh. and and they they a lot of people there believe this stuff, right? Because they're told by their governments that all their problems are not caused by the by the government of of their country, but by the Jews, right? Yeah, yes. and and this book provides the quote unquote proof of it. Oh, the yeah, the one other one point I wanted to make was. You, 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 you know that two thousand dollars per family. Like if you think, um, let's say there are ten million families in Canada. You know that's uh, two thousand dollars per family. I mean that's like two, I don't know, like two twenty billion dollars or something like that. Uh, you know twenty billion dollars. That's like you know that's like the software industry. You know in Canada. So like if something was like a twenty billion dollar year industry in Canada you would kind of see it, you know, like, I mean, I would be, you and I would be involved in it, right? <laughs> you know, we'd be. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because like, I'm still waiting for my checks from the giant Jewish conspiracy. Yeah, I know. But uh, I, I did read one study where a guy was, a guy was like, um, you know, I mean, the, the fees that, you know, that, that these organizations charge, it's like, say, like planters peanuts, right? You know, they, they have a guy come once a year and inspect the plant and he gets paid like, like $10,000 or $20,000. But if you think they're doing like, um, you know, this plant is doing like, you know, a million jars a year, that's, you know, that's a sort of a fraction of a cent. There, there's a good stat someplace where it basically, you know, it, if you wanted to add it to the cost, it, it breaks down to about, you know, point oh 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 two cents per unit. You know, it's 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 absolutely negligible. It's not two thousand dollars a year. You know, it's funny to to notice too that uh, before I use this as an example, Oreo cookies. The reason that that popped in my mind is because in the U.S. it has kosher certification. So the Oreo cookies you buy in the U.S. are kosher. But here in Canada, because there's not enough of a, a, a kosher market, uh, the manufacturer does not 
get kosher certified for uh-huh. the selling of okay. Oreo cookies. So I remember growing up that it would be a big deal when we visit the States because we could stock up on kosher Oreo cookies to bring back home. Awesome. So do you, do you have to eat like, what is it, Mr. Mr. Creamy, Loblaws, Mr. Creamy or something like that? Oh, the, the no-name brands are hardly ever <laughs> kosher. So. Oh, well, geez, you're that's, totally doomed. Well, that's that's the problem with keeping kosher is it's so expensive. You know, like uh, for the, the packaged products, it's not really any more expensive. You just have to stick to the name brand, which is more expensive than the uh, no-name brand. So that's right. a bit of an expense there. But also with the meats, uh, the meat is just way more expensive. So if you go to any kosher butcher, uh, the meat will just be more expensive. And that's the big cost. Yeah, and I I think one of the reasons why this kind of, you know, people almost believe it is because, like, almost nobody pays attention to that little circle K or COR symbol on their food product. And if someone comes to them and says, you know, a secret Jewish tax on food, here's the proof. And they look and they go, oh, my God, you know. I've never noticed it, but it's, that symbol's been hidden there in plain sight. You know, it, it, it's that like a little bit of truth sort of then suddenly makes them, you know, uh, open to the truth of you know what the conspiracy nuts are sort of saying. It's kind of an interesting. Do, do you remember the um, was it Johnson and Johnson? They used to have like a moon and star symbol on their products. Uh, there was also a Snapple, I believe, on their uh, packaging. A lot of people read into that as well. Right, yeah, yeah. But it was like the Johnson & Johnson. For a long time, their corporate symbol is like a moon and, I don't know, six stars or, no, 13 stars. The thir- the car, yeah, 13 stars. And people are saying, oh, that's the symbol of the devil. And you could, you know, you can draw, you know, you can make a 666 out of the 13 stars and stuff. And But they're saying, well, no, 13 stars, you know, 13 original American colonies. And, uh, you know, but, uh, yeah, but people sort of, you know, would, didn't really believe this and they would look at their Johnson and Johnson products and oh my god there is that devil symbol on my hidden on my products in plain sight you know yep people will believe what they want to believe yeah exactly so, you know you just sort of give them a little bit of correct information and then you know and then when they go verify it themselves and it just sort of makes them you know much more open to the you know to, to your lies kind of thing I don't know it, that, that uh, Connecting back to the uh, the protocols, it's kind of similar too, where the, the things being written about, there are little bits of kernel and truth there, talking about how the media feeds off of uh, uh, sensationalism, for example. It, it mentions things like that. Well, like yeah, that's true to to a certain extent, but that doesn't mean the Jews are using the media to control people's minds. You know, there might right. be simpler explanations to it. Right. Well, you know, in in Korea, the uh there were, there were all these – they looked like little synagogues or something everywhere in Korea. And at first I was like, well, you know, there's a lot of Korean Jews. I, I didn't really – never knew there were so many Jews in Korea. And then someone explained it to me. No, no, these are like these are like schools that are, are you know, for Korean kids. But they're sort of based on Jewish teaching methods because, you know, because Koreans sort of see Jews in America and they go, oh, they're, you know, they're very, they're a minority, but they're very successful. And they're, you know, they're, they're, you know, law and science and medicine and, and all the professions Korean mothers want their kids to follow. So they go, oh, there must be something to their teaching method. So they, they put them in these sort of these, these schools that sort of claim to, you know, um, you know, use sort of Jewish proctoring methods. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of. Oh, I did not know that. That sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. But you know, the other thing too is in Korea. It's like, uh, you know, tell me if this sounds familiar. Uh, okay, there's a minority in Korea that uh, people claim have 
big noses, uh, spread disease, come by their money unfairly, uh, have un you know sort of have advantages the average person doesn't get, and uh, and and violates their uh, their women. Who who are we talking about? Uh, well, I guess. If you're talking about Europe in the 20s, that would be the Jews, of course. Yeah, right? yeah. English teachers in uh, in Korea today. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of funny how this, you know, you're, you're sort of like all the, uh, you know, the big backlash against sort of English teachers in Korea. And I'm just sort of reading through these newspaper articles and the editorial comics, and I'm like, this is all like, you know, Albert Stryker's, you know, Der Sturmer, you know, race baiting stuff. Yeah, you know, Germany in the 1920s and 30s. I'm like, do they like? Are, are they following a template, or is this just something that's like inborn in culture, almost? You know that that you know we sort of find a minority, blame it on them, and 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 all these negative things we attribute to them. I don't know. Well, that's kind of frightening to hear because I have a friend who's about to go to South Korea to teach English. Well, well, <laughs> no, it's it's you know it's it's almost it's fine. It's just the, once in a while there's a, a couple little things that make you go. Oh, you know, like the first time you're kind of, because, you know, you're just like, you used to being like the average white guy in North American society, and no one even would ever notice you, ever, right? You know, and then suddenly you're in this culture where, like, you're the, you know, the thumb sticking out, and it's like, oh, you know. So the first time you kind of maybe experience a little bit of racism, you know, you're, you're, you're a bit like, oh, oh, is that what it feels like? Yeah. Oh. Well, this is kind of novel, you know. It's like it's very, it's very interesting. Yeah, it's very humbling, eh? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's almost like uh, it's 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 so novel. It's almost charming. I mean, the first time it happens, the second time not so much. But all right, okay. So I think we should wrap up, uh, Jonathan. Anything you want to add about you know the the protocols or the. Uh, the, even the secret Jewish tax on food, which I think we talked about more than the protocols, because <laughs> I, I just find that so fascinating—the secret Jewish tax on food. You know, yeah, but, you seem to have a fascination with food. Yeah, exactly. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of things I wanted to add about the protocols that sure. we, we didn't quite get to. Uh, it's interesting to note the language that is used in the protocols that I think might lead to why they're so popular amongst conspiracy theorists. They they often refer to the goyim, which which I guess they, they consider a uh, derogatory term used by Jews to refer to non-Jews. Uh, they're referred to as uh, sheep or cattle, ah, which, okay. which is kind of funny because a lot of conspiracy theorists will uh, refer to people who don't buy into the conspiracy theories as sheeple. Right, yes. Or as sheep people, you know. Right. So it, it fits within their, their worldview. Uh, another thing is, is it's important to note that uh, the protocols were used uh, heavily in Nazi Germany. I probably don't even need to mention this, but they're uh, used by uh, Hitler to uh, spread hate of the Jews right. uh, during his reign. Uh, he mentions it uh, in Mein Kampf, uh, and uh, it was taught to school children in the 20s and 30s, and I guess the 40s as well. And how many times did uh, Hitler mention Darwin in Mein Kampf? I don't Did he ever? No, zero times. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to talk about a real racist book, it's uh, it's the protocols there, not right. not Origin of Species. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Okay. So I guess the fi- final question: um, what, uh, what what's your favorite small kitchen appliance? Oh, the toaster oven. Really? Okay. Why why the why the toaster oven? Well, it does so much, and it does it so quickly. It's great. 
because it, it, it um, allows you to reheat leftovers or cook, uh, you know, single serving or two people size servings of food. Uh, you don't have to fire up the whole oven, so it it, it gets started much faster. Uh, it's way better than the microwave because the food actually comes out crispy and not soggy. All right. Uh, it's just all around the perfect kitchen appliance. All right, awesome. All right. And I grew up with that one. <laughs> so I just discovered it in my later years. <laughs> you do that, right, when you're sort of you're finally out of the household and you're on your own and you got your own money. I mean the things you just sort of bust out and do and it's kinda it's kinda it's kinda bizarre. And uh, oh I you know, I should I should announce I uh I, I don't know if you listen to the show, but almost every every other guest I have when I say what's your small, you know, what's your favorite small kitchen appliance, the, uh, they they say it's the uh, you know the slap chop. People seem to really love the slap chop. I've never used one. Maybe I'm missing out like I was on the uh, toaster oven. Well, I I finally bought one uh, last weekend, and uh, it's 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 marvelous. Yeah, I can see why the people the slap ch- the you know the sham wow doesn't work, but the slap chop it works. Uh, there you go. Wow. All right. So, uh, so how, how can we catch uh, uh, your re- reality check? You know, the, I have many podcasts begin with R in my iTunes. I got reality check, reasonable doubts, righteous indignation, <laughs> and so some. Sometimes I could, can never remember the, the name of your podcast. It's the Alzheimer's, the early Alzheimer's. You understand? Yes. Well, if you want to catch the show, just go to OttawaSkeptics.org. We have everything there, or you can search in iTunes for the reality check. Um, and uh, it's all available there. Okay. Are, are you guys going to be at TAM this year? Uh, I've attended TAM the past two years, and I plan on attending uh, this year. I've, I've bought uh, my hotel. I've rented. I've reserved my hotel room, and I've bought tickets uh, for the event. And so I do plan on going there again and try to interview as many people as I can. All right, cool. Yeah, because I'm going. Uh, I'm definitely going to go this year. Well, I mean, I haven't. But you're way ahead of the the curve. But than me. I haven't bought my ticket or airplane flight or hotel or anything like that, but I'm going to do it before the, uh, you know, the free, uh, or the, uh, the early discount period ends. Yeah. So, um, I, I really look looking forward to it. Uh, one of the best parts of, uh, having your own podcast, I'm sure you'll agree is the opportunity to interview people that normally you would have any, you would have no excuse to talk to. Oh, okay. So, and Richard Dawkins is going to be the keynote speaker this year. So I look forward to maybe getting a chance to talk to him. That might be fun. Wow. All right, then. Okay. All right. Well, thank, thanks Thanks for sparing some time, Jonathan. And, oh, my pleasure. Uh, all right. Cool. And uh, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. We were supposed to record on Sunday, Easter. Uh, but uh, weather was too darn nice, wasn't it? Yeah. Sorry about that. No, yeah. No problem. Because I saw on Saturday you were uh, on, on your Facebook, you were – you sort of Facebooked from uh, some sidewalk cafe or something, or you're watching a hockey game or something. Yeah, I was I was on an outdoor patio watching the hockey game. Yeah, with some friends. Yeah, so I thought, oh, yeah, Jonathan might not make it tomorrow. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right, okay, take care, Jonathan. Have a good night. Yeah, you too. All right, bye bye. Bye bye. My friends are gone and my hair is gray. I ache in the places where I used to play, and I'm crazy for love, but I'm not coming on. I'm just paying my rent every day in the Tower of Song. I'm 
Above me in the tower of song. 